Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Another fun day from Michael Barr, the Fed's vice chair for supervision. Up for another turn on Capitol Hill today, this time before the House Financial Services Committee this after the hours-long testimony he gave to the Senate yesterday, opening this morning with a simple message. Our banking system is sound and resilient, with strong capital and liquidity. Okay, that we've heard this a lot. We heard that, in fact, from the Treasury Secretary. We heard that from the President of the United States. And the chair of the committee, Patrick McHenry, was with us just last week here on Bloomberg. Again, Republican House Financial Services wanted to pick through the timeline. Now, remember, this happened over the weekend when SVB failed. We'll go back two weeks now, and it was the days leading into that weekend that we started to hear about problems. The Fed was hearing about it even earlier, going all the way back to February. But those days before the weekend, Patrick McHenry wanted to dig in here with all of them, including Michael Barr. You had a staff presentation in February that included Silicon Valley Bank and the distress because of uh, rising interest rates on their portfolio. What did you do between that February staff presentation to you and the week of March 6th? about Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, Staff uh, presented on the interest rate risk. Yes, that's what I said. That was a February presentation. What did you do as vice chair of supervision between that time and the bank, uh, the week of the bank failure? Staff indicated that they were completing their review uh, of the bank and of this broader horizontal review at that time, and I was waiting for the results of that review. Were you aware of Silicon Valley Bank raising capital the week of March 6th? I, I believe I became aware of that in this email that I described to you. On Thursday, Thursday morning, morning, that they had successfessfully raised the capital, but they had dis- they, were, they were facing financial distress. I, I was not aware um, Thursday morning that there were deposit outflows. I was trying to finish the answer to that question. I was aware of, of the difficulty Wednesday night in raising capital, but the bank was reporting to supervisors Thursday morning that deposits were stable. When did you so, become aware of the deposit flows? At on Thursday. Thursday afternoon, late afternoon, I became aware of deposit flows and Thursday evening that there was essentially a bank run. Like I said, another fun day for Michael Barr, talking about the bank run with Patrick McHenry, who knew what, when. And the line of questioning leads us to this idea here that the Fed knew that we had a real problem at SVB. And as John Tester said yesterday in the Senate, you had the hammer. You just didn't drop it. And that's where we start with John Rizzo, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at the Clyde Group. Spent time as spokesperson for the U.S. Treasury Department and joins us here on Bloomberg Sound On. John, I appreciate your time here. Is Patrick McHenry driving in the right direction on this? Well, certainly there's got to be a a part of this where we figure out who knew what, when, and what actions did federal officials take when they realized that SCB was in trouble. As we get into this more, I think we're going to find that there are probably multiple points of failure here, both failure on the part of the financial institution, 
but also more that regulators and overseers could have done uh, to intervene when signs of trouble emerge. Mm-hmm. What's it going to lead to, John? Because there's not a great expectation that Congress is going to do much here. Maybe you disagree. Or is this up to regulators to fix if, if it does require tightening regulations? Yeah, I think the most likely scenario is that regulators will have to take action to over increase oversight. Um, we may have a congressional bill that comes together, but as you indicated, that's going to be very difficult to move through a divided Congress. Uh, Congress should, though, endeavor to try, because ultimately the most durable solutions, uh, the ones that lead to longstanding uh, change, are ones that come through Congress. And so the economy would be better off and more secure if Congress were to come together on this. Michael Barr, interesting in his uh, his his opening uh, statement here during his testimony, after using the words, you have to say sound and resilient now, that is apparently the message uh, from the administration and the Fed, the Treasury. If you used to have that job, you know how this works. Sound and resilient. But he went on to say that more should have been done. Listen. At the same time, the events of the last few weeks raise questions about what more can be done and should be done so that isolated banking problems do not undermine confidence in healthy banks and threaten the stability of the banking system as a whole. What's he getting at there, John? What more should have been done if not just simply acting earlier? Yeah, so I think part of the communications challenge that federal officials face in this scenario is that their words carry substantial weight and the market is listening uh, to every syllable. And so there's a need uh, to project uh, confidence and strength in the banking system, which is rooted in fact. Uh, But there's also a need to be clear at this point that something went wrong and that we're going through a process to try to figure out what that is and what could be done to prevent it happening again. More oversight is one option. There may be additional rules that Congress needs to pass to increase oversight here as well. So I think we're in a, a fact-finding process, and that can be frustrating for the public because we all want answers really quickly. But it is going to take time, and it is true that the underlying strength of the banking system remains intact. Well, if that's the case then, you're not worried about contagion, it sounds like, John. What, what needs to be done other than do your job better? Well, certainly there's going to be a recommitment uh, by regulators to examining these institutions. Uh, but there have been, uh, have been debate about reforms that were passed in 2018, whether those contributed uh, to the crisis or whether uh, actions by the individual bankers uh, at SCB uh, maybe showed a lack of care for risk management. So all of those three things are going to have to be examined. Now, we know that in a financial system, a free market system, bank failures can happen. Uh, they found you, John. Is everything all right there? Yeah, no, it, okay. it's good. I'm not, uh, I'm not getting arrested. If it's you get cuffed else. on the air, I'm not, I'm not going to hang up on you. Nah. <laughs> all right, that sounds good. <laughs> so uh, the go forward here, uh, we're, we're waiting for May 1st. That's when the Fed's internal review is released. Does anything yeah. happen between now and then? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of study, review, and debate. And I think we're going to have to wait uh, until May 1st. 
to get more information. That'll be unsatisfying because there's a need in urgent situations like this to get information right away. But uh, the review takes time for a reason. I think there'll be a lot of internal debate uh, within all parts of government to try to figure out what is needed to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Boy. It's hard to tell where we're going on this because you wait till May. A lot of things can happen, John. They're talking about the first Twitter bank run in history. Yeah. The fact that this moves so quickly in Congress is, yeah. you know, I'll get back to you the second half of the year. Yeah, no, it's, it's unsatisfying. And there is, listen, to be honest, an element of danger to it. Because what we saw here was a bank that had distress, mm-hmm. but that distress was exacerbated by social media and rumors that circulated. And we're kind of trying to figure out now, uh, in this current times, the way that information moves so quickly and sometimes in an unverified way, how is it that we can uh, be sure that institutions don't experience these runs mm-hmm. like we've seen uh, over the last few weeks? It can be it's hard a to handle con- that. Yeah, it's a modern conundrum. And listen, I don't think we have a good answer for it yet. Uh, part of it is, you know, people are on their phones and they're looking at Twitter or TikTok and they're hearing information and they're reacting to it. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, um, it's a it's kind of a societal problem that we haven't gotten our arms around. Lastly, John, uh, with what you know here, do you believe that the officials running that bank, specifically SVB, we'll just talk about that individual bank for now, knew what trouble they were in before we all did? Well, there's no question, I think, if you look at the fact pattern over the last, the last week, it was clear that they sensed they had some problem. And it's clear that they didn't spend enough time investing in their risk management infrastructure. But we also know that the kind of social media element of this drove events faster than anyone had anticipated. So I don't think we, we know the ultimate answer right now of exactly what happened or exactly who knew what where. Yeah. But I do think when we get to the full answer, we're going to find multiple points of failure. And that's something Congress and regulators are going to have an obligation to fix. I appreciate the time. John Rizzo, thanks for the insights, John. Senior VP, Public Affairs. The Clyde Group used to be spokesperson for the U.S. Treasury. I'll have to meet you at the lunch card next time. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On. Let's assemble the panel and hear from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors on day two of the hearings. We're watching so you don't have to, as we like to say. And I just want to start with... With uh, both of you on the matter of regulation, we talked to French Hill, the congressman from Arkansas, fairly often here on Bloomberg. He's on that panel. He's on that committee. And he was asking Michael Barr specifically about the rollback of of certain conditions in Dodd-Frank that we've talked about a lot in 2018 and whether, in fact, that had something to do with this. Because, you know, Democrats say rebuild Dodd-Frank and this won't happen again. Listen, this issue of Dodd-Frank versus S-2155 you know, my reading of, of bank law, just those things are just almost not important compared to 12 U.S.C. 1818 on cease and desist, where the FDIC, the primary bank regulator, the state can do whatever they want to a bank that's not operating in a safe and sound manner. Isn't that right, Mr. Barr? The, um, the, the bank regulators have substantial discretion to use uh, those authorities right. when banks are operating in a, an unsafe and unsound manner. I agree with that. Okay. A little bit of jargon there. Remembering S. 2155 was the Senate bill that undid some of those uh, parts, rolled back some of those parts of Dodd-Frank. Jeannie, did Michael Barr just agree that this had nothing to do with the SVB bank failure? 
Well, you know, I thought it was fascinating that all three of the regulators seem to agree to a certain extent with Elizabeth Warren when she talks about the need for strengthening regulations. But I think what this is going to come down to and where we find Democrats, because there is, you know, a, a good variety up there. If you look at the Senate between somebody like John Tester and somebody like Elizabeth Warren on this, not to mention the Republicans, is going to be when did the Fed know what was going on at SVB and did they fall? short on the job in other words was this a failure of regulation in addition to management or do they really need to strengthen these regulations because i think warren may find more friends if they do confirm that it was a not enough regulation in place versus a failure of these regulators to act when they knew what was going wrong it's pretty hard to get consensus on this of course rick we've talked to a lot of lawmakers about it how, how do you read michael barr's answer on that because he seemed pretty clear about it yeah, I thought he was too, and 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 the whole hearing kind of bore that out. When you look at the timeline that they had out there, you know, where the supervisors were finding deficiencies back in the end of 2021, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't for lack of legal uh, statutory uh, uh, power to do that. They did it, and they were doing it in a normal course of business. They uh, after the the 2155 had passed, and so 2155 clearly didn't prohibit the regulators from identifying weakness at this bank. Then you can start blaming regulators and blaming bank management for kicking the can to the point where uh, the bank came down. But uh, I'm really not sure it's you know, really directly related to the legislation. And and I do think there is a bipartisan uh, nature to future legislation. I think you know, Elizabeth Warren's working with Rick Scott. That doesn't happen every day for an IG within the Fed, uh, which makes some sense based on the fact that the Fed did not seem to be taking the appropriate action at the right time. You know, they were they identified the problem, but they didn't do anything about it. So what's going to be the takeaway in this May 1st report here? Is it going to be more of that, Genie? Is the Fed going to say, boy, you know what? We we really should have acted sooner. We knew what was going on. Obviously, the executives at SVB were in the wrong. We know that. That's not in dispute now. But the Fed should have acted with the authority that it was granted earlier. Maybe that rollback took their eye off the ball, but they had the clear authority to do something. So maybe there should be an independent review. The question is, well, who would do it? I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. On this second day of bank failure hearings in Washington, the U.S. House gets its turn and We've got the best panel in the business to help us understand what we just heard. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, following another interesting exercise on Capitol Hill. Rick, what's your thought on this? You know the Fed is, well, investigating itself, basically, in this case. You know that there will be investigations coming out of the committees, which actually could be fruitful. But what about an outside investigation? How does that happen? Does the president appoint someone, or where will we go? Yeah, I I think it's worth noting that the Fed is launching its own investigation, but the IG at the Fed is actually launching his own investigation of the Fed. So there are two Fed investigations going on about each other. So it'll be interesting to see how consistent the two of those are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe the uh, first report we'll get in May 1st uh, from the Fed uh, itself, uh, and it'll take another few months after that for the IG to report. So uh, we're going to get a steady stream of information from them. And, and I think that the proper role of Congress uh, is to uh, do their own investigation, especially mm-hmm. right now, because uh, as we discussed in the last segment, we really don't know uh, how many underlying banks might be like SVB and have these kinds of situations where they might be undercapitalized or they might have a lot of interest rate risk. 
I'm sure that the regulators are scrambling to survey banks, but they weren't prepared today when Brad Sherman asked them the straight-up question, have you surveyed the banks and are there others in trouble? Right. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. Uh, that's, that's not a good answer uh, two weeks after one of the biggest banks in America uh, got true. taken down. So uh, I, I think Congress should do their thing. I'm not sure you need some kind of an independent So you don't necessarily favor the idea just in concept? Yeah, not okay. me. How about you, Jeannie? Yeah, you know, I wasn't open to it at the beginning, but I think what we're looking at here is two things. Number one, we do need the information on exactly what happened, so we do need to know. But the other part of this is confidence, the confidence of the American public in in terms of what is found. And that is where I think an independent investigation and independent spotlight on this might be potentially helpful. I do think that Congress is the primary charge here in terms of exercising its oversight authority to look. But I do worry about the confidence aspect. So I would not be opposed. And again, I was a couple weeks ago, but I would not be opposed to an independent investigation for those reasons, because I do think the confidence in the system is critical at this point, as critical as finding out exactly what happened and ensuring that it doesn't happen again. How do you actually make it independent? Does Joe Biden appoint some sort of outside investigators is there a special counsel what do we call it yeah you'd need to go to you know recruit ben bernanke to come back and get a, <laughs> a, a bunch of gray beards to <laughs> sit around and 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 then you're going to spend a lot of time staffing that up and, and 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 again this is a time sensitive issue i mean we have people in place today trained investigators and in all these regulatory uh committees of congress uh who could go and 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 are already doing it for the last two weeks so uh, mm-hmm. I think speed is is utmost important. If someone then wants to say outside of the current crisis, um, you know, what do we need to be doing for reform? Uh, I, I think a, a, a not an investigation, but a committee put together to analyze that in a nonpartisan way is probably not a bad idea. But this has not become too much of a partisan football yet. There's still cooperation between parties. And I think that's the best way to get legislation, which is John Rizzo earlier in the program said, you know, Congress can create more permanent change uh, that is what you need for stability within the regulations in the banking community. Congressman Stephen Lynch got to the matter of speed here, Jeannie. You know, the first so-called Twitter bank run, as the chairman uh, put it, Patrick McHenry, and he was talking to Martin Grunberg from the FDIC. Is there something more that we need to be doing now because of the the velocity of, of money? People can move their money out like that. And and are we equipped? The FDIC has a long and strong history, but is is something new and different needed to protect us from that phenomenon? Congressman, I think that's an important question to ask. I think we are dealing with um, with a different environment, and the points you raise in terms of how quickly money can move, how what the technology enables now that exceeds what's occurred in the past, is a new risk factor that we have to think about. Okay, so there you have the question and the answer. That's the regulator who could potentially handle this, outside of legislation at least. When I hear that, uh, Jeannie, it sounds to me like we have no idea. How how in the world are you going to slow down the velocity, as Stephen Lynch put it, of Twitter? That's right. And that was, I think, a stunning part for me. And I think for many people listening, when Barr revealed that when we had previously been told it was 42 billion withdrawn in that limited period, it was a staggering 100 billion. 
It is a stunning number. And the the enormity of that, coupled with the fact that you then have the regulators themselves saying, boy, this is a new risk. That is right. We've never seen this. That is right. And yet very little they could offer in terms of how to ensure today, tomorrow, next week, it doesn't mm-hmm. happen again. And I think, you know, this gets back to something you were talking about earlier. It's really challenging for these regulators. They have to, on the one hand, try to assure the market and the American public that they everything is safe and express confidence and at the same hand at the same time rather delve into the problems that occurred and walking that line is a tough communication challenge and at some points i felt in the last couple days at least they sort of missed the mark and that was Mm -hmm. one example of that rick we can hardly get uh, a tiktok bill Uh, well hardly it hasn't passed mark warner's searching for supporters uh, it may not become law. How how could you possibly write legislation that would slow down the relationship between social media and banking? The banks themselves are advertising this, right? Get the app on your phone. You can move money in a heartbeat. They're not going to move back from that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think we're looking at this totally differently. I, I think the thing you got to figure out is how do you speed up federal regulation and these, 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 these guys who are supposedly uh, uh, keeping the American trust in the system to a, a scenario that is not new today. The idea that you have a regulator today saying, yeah, we're just trying to play catch up. <laughs> I mean, you know, this has been going on for two decades. Um, uh, when, when are they going to catch up? Uh, we've seen this in crypto. We've seen this in other derivatives. We've seen this now in the banking system. We have a federal government that is still in the 20th century while they're regulating businesses that are pushing the envelope in the 21st century. That's not going to change before this banking crisis ends, Jeannie, is it? No, that's not going to change. And then that's the reality of American government. And this is the problem that we have is that, you know, you not only have people that are not you did not grow up in the system necessarily in charge and don't understand it, as we hear in a lot of these back and forths in these hearings that we cover. But also you have a government designed to work very slowly. So, you know, I, I think Rick is right when he says, you know, we should have the regulators catch up to this. But the reality is the government never catches up on this. It is the <laughs> private sector that does this. And yeah. then the government is, you know, playing catch up and it's a dangerous game to play. And, you know, I think if there's one thing out of these hearings that we hear over and over again, it's them scratching their heads that, well, you know, this is a problem. We're not quite sure what to do about it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't instill confidence. Stephen Lynch also got to something I wanted to ask you both about in our last couple of minutes here on this topic. And, you know, we talk about the the, the the companies that had to make payroll, you know, the multi-billion dollar deposits that were being held by uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Stephen Lynch is talking about the impact on low-income voters, and he's got a lot of them in his district. This is Massachusetts, and it goes south of Boston into areas like Brockton, where, you know, low-income housing is a is a major story. Listen to... Stephen Lynch talking to the regulators. The bank crisis might be over. It's not over in my district with all these families, all these low-income families that are that are struggling. You know, I got cities like Brockton, Massachusetts. Yeah, Brockton. Uh, we got a great mayor there doing a wonderful job, and they're really they're all going in the right direction, and as well as Boston and, and Quincy and others. But uh, we need help. We need to resolve this. So, Mr. Gruenberg, I need a commitment from you, sir, um, that. We, you, you need to come to Brockton. You need to come to Brockton in my district. Yeah. And we need to work this through so that we provide the kind of protection for low-income 
families. He did agree, by the way, to make the trip. Brockton, baby. Maybe Quincy. Jeannie, is this even part of the conversation it, in it, Washington right now? It absolutely should be. I miss that Boston accent, and, and I hope they do go. And you couple that with the amount of money that the management at SVB and at Signature were taking home, and we know that they're going to probably land in trouble for that. There'll be some clawbacks. But you couple those two things. This should be a major part of this discussion, and I, I'm glad he raised this issue. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzino with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And a reminder, it was this day. Did you see this while you were getting yourself together this morning? It was on this day, March 29, in 1999, for a little perspective. First day the Dow Industrial Average crossed the 10,000 mark. Remember, everyone had the 10,000 hats on, 10K on the trading floor. I'll never forget that day. The editor at another financial network where I was working had a big poster on the wall, and it said, next stop, Dow, 30,000. And we laughed. But, of course, we have seen it all happen. Which brings us to the matter at hand today, not the markets, although they seem to be getting along all right with this Second day of banking hearings, not exactly a market mover, just a lot of questions about what happened and where we're going here. The headline on the terminal, Fed's bar, that's Michael Barr, the vice chair for supervision, acknowledges oversight lapses before the failure of SVB, and he sure did. At the same time, the events of the last few weeks raise questions about what more can be done and should be done so that isolated banking problems do not undermine confidence in healthy banks and threaten the stability of the banking system as a whole. If you read the note from Libby Cantrell on Monday morning from PIMCO, uh, you were prepared for all of this. In the room where it happens, as she writes, I love Libby's notes. Talk, 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 but, but, but. While there will be a lot of talk, and God knows, our ears are sweating. 
We still do not believe Congress will act anytime soon on the banking failures, assuming there's not a broader contagion. And although there's been a lot of confusion in the market, she writes, especially on the heels of Janet Yellen's testimony last week, our view is that it is only Congress with the ability to increase FDIC insurance or provide a blanketed guarantee. Libby, it's great to have you. I have to admit, I was I was hoping maybe we would not agree on this, that maybe something might get done here. But if another bank does not collapse and God knows anything could happen, is Congress just going to pack up its toys and go home? Yeah, well, good afternoon, Joe. It's nice to nice to be with you, um, and thanks for thanks for those quotes from my from my Monday uh, client note. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, look, I think that you know, we we sort of expected what we've heard over the last two days, which um, which is sort of to be expected from Congress these days. You know, a lot of talk, a lot of heated rhetoric, some demagoguery um, of this issue, uh, some calls for more oversight, particularly as it relates to to the Fed supervision. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actually the threshold for Congress to act here, both in terms of increasing more regulation on these banks. Um, or and or uh, increasing the statutory uh, deposit insurance level of 250000 we think that that threshold is incredibly high uh, and would likely require not only one or two more banks to fail, uh, but, you know, a much broader kind of systemic run on the banking system, which, of course, we hope we don't we don't have uh, on our hands. So, again, I think it's just in this split Congress, in this political environment, uh, the threshold would be it's going to be high. I think that the last two days of hearings and members from both sides of the aisle have just reinforced the fact that any kind of uh, congressional action is, is unlikely, at least yeah. in this sort of steady state environment. Really important moment here uh, that I'm going to go back to uh, with French Hill, the congressman from Arkansas, a former banker, in fact, uh, and Michael Barr here. When it comes to the, the passage of the law in 2018, S2155, uh, that we've all become familiar with, which lowered the threshold, or I guess raised the threshold, actually, for banks uh, undergoing stress tests. Uh, some Democrats, like Brad Sherman, who we've spoken with, Elizabeth Warren, think that was to blame. The, 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 the more lax regulation was to blame for the bank failures. Here's French Hill. This issue of Dodd-Frank versus S-2155, you know, my reading of, of bank law, just those things are just almost not important compared to 12 U.S.C. 1818 on cease and desist, where the FDIC, the primary bank regulator, the state can do whatever they want to a bank that's not operating in a safe and sound manner. Isn't that right, Mr. Barr? The, um, the, the bank regulators have substantial discretion to use uh, those authorities right. when banks are operating in a, an unsafe and unsound manner. Okay. I agree with that. All right. So, Libby, he kind of agreed, right? I mean, to suggest that 2018 was to blame is not the view of the Fed. Yeah, and I think that's that's just important for folks to remember. So this S twenty one fifty five, which of course has become much more in our vernacular uh, <laughs> over the last few weeks, um, it, you know, it was it was a bill that did increase the the level of assets for sort of more punitive scrutiny uh, from the Federal Reserve. However, uh, it did allow, and, and actually at the Federal Reserve's insistence. Um, that the Fed had continued to have discretion if they wanted it uh, to apply the these these various liquidity and capital ratios to these banks with assets um, of above a hundred billion. So the the legislation again provided some relief for these kind of mid-sized banks between a hundred billion and two hundred fifty billion dollars. But the Fed did continue to have the discretion should they 
should they want it, um, to apply those more rigorous standards. And, of course, they did not in this case. Uh, now, we will see. I mean, there's going to obviously be a ton more postmortems here, Joe, um, sure. both by the Fed and the FDIC about exactly what happened and what could have uh, you know, been done to prevent this. And so we'll see whether, you know, if, if those more stringent capital liquidity requirements had been applied, would this have prevented a failure? I think it's just too it's too early to say, honestly. Sure. Um, I think it's something that's important, though, and a lot of these liquidity ratios in particular, uh, these banks are actually um, incentivized, if not mandated, to hold some of these longer-dated treasuries. So, you know, I think there'll likely be a um, sort of a reevaluation of what those liquidity standards and liquidity ratios will entail as well, just given um, given this big you know, interest rate mismatch. Mm-hmm. Well, so you're not expecting any major piece of legislation to come out of this unless we get, you know, there's further contagion or something big happens and anything could happen. That was your but, 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 and you have a but, but, but part two here. And this is important because we've been talking about the possibility reporting on this quite a bit of the Fed using its own authority to provide a a, a broader backstop, as you call it, of uninsured deposits. But you see that as not necessarily uh, in the purview of the Fed, in fact, stretching the authorities that Congress envisioned. Does that mean the Fed can't do it? Yeah, not to get kind of too weedy here, but um, the Fed and the Treasury have some unilateral authorities to provide a backstop to, um, to provide some sort of, you know, to address systemic risk. You know, however, um, to provide a blanketed guarantee on all uninsured deposits seems like a big stretch. Um, as you well know, Joe, uh, the power of the purse uh, rests with Congress. And so any action where the administration is going to be viewed as advancing what's, what's effectively fiscal policy, um, I think is going to have a lot of uh, you know, legal, if not political, obstacles. So while there are some folks in you know, the government and, and sort of political analysts who think that the Treasury in particular, through this exchange stabilization fund, again, not to get too weedy, um, has some authorities here, and they arguably may, I just think politically it is kind of a bridge too far for, for both the Treasury and the Fed to use yeah. this. And I don't think it's something that the market should necessarily rely on. As I mentioned in that note, this really is a statutory limitation, this $250,000 guarantee of insured deposits at that 250k level is really statutory. It's legal. It is bound by Congress. And you know, our view is that it's really Congress is, uh, has the authority to, to increase it. And I think that the Treasury and the Fed are honestly want to be respectful and honor that, especially given um, the sort of blowback that they've received over the last two days. You know, we love weeds. We go deep in the weeds. That's why <laughs> you're do. here right That's now. Why we love Bloomberg. Yes, exactly. But, you know, at the same time, Libby, we sort of have that arrangement already tacitly, right? Isn't the government standing by yeah. to backstop any deposit anywhere if another bank should fail? Yeah, and this is, again, going even deeper into the weeds. Um, this go. is really what was produced by the systemic risk exception, which is, you know, this you know kind of very unusual, honestly, has only been used a handful of times in history, um, this exception that the FDIC and the Fed deemed regarding um, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank 
and, and I think it's really important to remember, though, that that exception can only be used when the banks are in receivership, i.e. they've been taken over by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, they are no longer able to operate independently. And in that case, if an SRE is deemed a systemic risk exception, then uninsured depositors can be made whole. Um, but it's a sort of very specific nuance in the law. Interestingly, before Dodd-Frank, uh, the FDIC had much broader uh, ability to provide a backstop to uninsured um, depositors, but that was changed and more limited in, you know, at, through the Dodd-Frank, um, you know, law legal process. So um, sort of interesting kind of history there. But so they do have, I think the bottom line here is they do have the tools, but the tools are very specific and can really only be used, at least in the case of the systemic risk exception, for those banks that are, are in receivership. Libby, I've got the view from Washington. Bring us to New York for a moment where you are. What what are investors saying? Is Wall Street worried? Are executives worried right now? Is there fear about tightening regulations? Or are they basically having the same conversation you are? Yeah, so I think that is actually what the kind of the punchline here is that we should not – Again, assuming there's not a broader run on the banks here, which we all hope there's not, um, that that Congress will not is very unlikely to act uh, at least in a meaningful way. But where the real action is going to be is going to be at the Federal Reserve. And again, they do have discretion to sort of reestablish and reimpose these more punitive liquidity and capital standards on these mid-sized banks. And I think from what Vice Chair Barr said, what FDIC Chair Gruenberg said both yesterday and today, that is the intention. They already have this discretion, and I think we should expect for them to move forward with it. Now, Joe, as you know, this is not going to be tomorrow. They have to go through a rulemaking process, most likely get input from the public. So this will take some time. But I think from an economic perspective, and this is a real kind of read through here to the economy, that a lot of these mid-sized banks are likely going to be in the position where they're just going to not be able to extend as much credit um, as they've been able to. They are not going to be able to originate as many loans as they've been able to. And that could have a meaningly a meaningful you know, knock on effect from an economic yeah. perspective, especially right. as we're going into a sort of slower growth uh, environment. So that said, there's been an exercise lately to try to figure out in terms of basis points what the impact of the bank failures mean. Uh, Bloomberg at one point, I think it was Bloomberg Intelligence, crushed it down to 50 basis. It was the equivalent of another 50 basis point hike. I've seen some suggest it's even larger. I wonder how you view that, the sort of lagging impact here and, and the, the work that it basically did for the Fed. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, Chairman Powell, I think, has indicated that as well, right? I think he has said that this is, in some ways, um, done some of the tightening for the Fed. And, of course, uh, you know, financial conditions tightening does do that. Um, It does sort of translate into, you know, kind of tighter monetary policy, or at least to the impact that the Fed is trying to make on the economy from a from a from a slowing perspective. Um, You know, I think the Fed has been very clear here, and they were clear last week that, you know, while they very much have a, an eye on the banking system, which they, of course, have every incentive to say is very sound and that no one should panic and what have you, um, that they are still, you know, very much focused on inflation. And so we take them at their word there that even though this has certainly done a little bit of the heavy lifting for them, that, you know, a lot of this data still is continuing to come in pretty hot um, and that they're going to just have to weigh that against sort of financial stability concerns. But what we understood from Chair Powell is that 
um, you know, again, while some of the heavy lifting has been done, there could be more, still more to go uh, should this inflation data continue to come in hot. So is the market off base already pricing in cuts instead of, <laughs> never mind, hikes, but just holding back? You know, yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, look, again, I think we're, we're, we're you know, I think where the Fed is sort of now pivoted to a more data-dependent um, orientation. Um, I think the fact that they, you know, still increased rates uh, by 25 bips last week was, was you know, telling that they're, again, they're still concerned about inflation, but that they, um, but that they are pivoting. We do, I would say, we do think that the threshold for cuts is going to be high, though, um, and, you know, for, for a whole, whole host of reasons. So in terms of market pricing around that, that may be where we, we diverge a bit. You need to see actual disinflation before that happens. Exactly. exactly. Libby, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to see me here today. Let's do it again soon. Oh, absolutely. Libby Cantrell, uh, what a a great piece of work here. Uh, If you're receiving those notes, you're smarter for it. Managing Director in PIMCO's Portfolio Management Group and a frequent voice of credibility here on Bloomberg Radio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. First, he boasted about the radioactive tidal wave. Remember that? Now Kim Jong-un is sending a loud message to the U.S., with the regime's biggest display of warheads, a series of new photos from North Korea's government showing Kim in a pinstriped suit inspecting, they say. And by that, I mean standing there and looking at a bunch of nuclear warheads designed to strike American allies in Asia. They say it may be a potential attack on the U.S. mainland. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, accusing North Korea of funding its nuke weapons program at the expense of people's welfare. We urge all Security Council members to support an open briefing in the coming months where we can discuss the DPRK's human rights violations and abuses and their implications for peace and security. We'll see if the Security Council does that. The ambassador says Kim Jong-un's government uses forced and exploited labor domestically and overseas, to support its weapons program. So much for U.S. demands North Korea abandon its nuclear weapons program. They are obviously advertising it now at this point, and it's something that we wanted to talk about uh, with our next guest. 
Nakayoko Aoki, Rand Associate Political Scientist, is with us now here on Bloomberg Sound On. Naoko, thanks for being with us. What is Kim Jong-un up to here, if, if it's anything more than bluster? Yeah, so while this is impossible to verify, um, you know, which part is real and which part is not, the message I think is pretty clear, and that's about the seriousness and um, what it wants to, North Korea wants to um, convey is the efficacy of North Korea's nuclear program. Do you believe the pictures are real, or is that what you're saying? There's no way to verify well, um, it's just there's no way to ver- verify on the one hand, but North Korea has been talking about, and this looks like um, tactical nuclear weapons are mm-hmm. smaller in scale, and they've been talking about that for a while. And um, so their their intention is to build it, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if they were real. That said, it does appear to be kind of a different strategy, uh, at least from Kim Jong-un. Instead of the nuclear test, you know, they pop a missile off, it goes into the ocean. Uh, We condemn that. Now it's more about showing the ability to make a coordinated attack. Is it too late for the U.S. to do anything? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, the message um, has been about not just about the number of um, weapons that North Korea has, about, but about how diversified their weapons are. And so they showed how they can um, fire a cruise missile from submarines. They showed missiles from um, being fired from underground. Of course, that means that it's difficult for the United States and, ally- and its allies to um, its ballistic missile systems, the U.S. and allies' ballistic missile systems, to detect and destroy them, um, the, mm-hmm. the, um, the mis- incoming missiles. So that's part of North Korea's message. When it comes to our ability to manage this, though, is the U.S. out mm-hmm. of carrots and sticks when it comes to North Korea? Yeah, so um, the best um, way, I think, to deal with this um, is for the United States and its allies, ROK, South Korea in particular, but Japan as well, to um, show a united front and, um, and, and show the North Koreans that they will work together if, should North Korea um, take steps, uh, attack. Sure. What's Kim Jong-un's relationship with President Xi at this point? Well, the two countries have become closer, particularly after the um, war in Ukraine, and the geopolitics is such that the um, Russia and China are not going to punish North Korea, which means that the UN Security Council, as you mentioned earlier, um, is not functional at the moment in terms of um, dealing with North Korea. Um, so she, or rather China and, um, China and North Korea, have become, certainly become closer um, over the last couple of years. So this is a, a growing risk for the U.S. This is not the same old North Korea uh, that we used to deal with and, and, and in, in many cases laugh off here in Washington. Yeah, this is a serious problem, I think, um, in the sense that since since North Korea, nothing is being done to um, prevent North Korea from um, improving its missile and nuclear arsenals um, quantitatively and qualitatively, um, it's going to continue doing this. And uh, so the problem is going to get bigger. Yeah. What does that look like in your mind, a bigger problem in North Korea? Yeah, so uh, the problem, there has to be a deterrence component. We have to show North Korea that, you know, it's it's um provoca- provocation will um after a certain you know a degree of provocation provocation excuse me will 
will not go unpunished. And also, um, but also um, at some point there has to be diplomacy because um, that is, probably the only way we can try to manage North Korea's growing, um, to cap, first cap North Korea's nuclear program and then try to roll it back. We held military drills uh, not far off uh, the peninsula. It was something that was condemned, obviously, as you would expect by North Korea. Drills with the, with the South Korean military. How much of that prompted this recent series of photos and some of the more erratic behavior we've seen? Yeah, um, North Korea, though, has been continuing with its, its modernization, military modernization program, and this has been in place since 2021. So it's steadily moving toward new weapons, and tactical nuclear weapons was one of the, um, were one of the, um, the, the weapons that, uh, types of weapons that um, North Korea has said that it will build. So it is not particularly new in that sense. But it is certainly, uh, North Korea is certainly trying to show that, um, t- trying to tell the United States and, and South Korea that um, don't think of attacking us. You know, there's little hope of disarming North Korea. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, that's the message that North Korea is trying to send. I wonder what the conversation is in our last moment here, just to get back to the issue of North Korea and China. What she tells Kim Jong-un or or kind of proves through his own actions about taking the U.S. seriously, because it's pretty clear that he does not. Um, Well, Xi Jinping, of course, has his own, you know, China's interest in mind, but North Korea having a nuclear weapon is not necessarily great for China, but it's certainly, they're certainly going to use it if um, it it sort of benefits China in the the largest Naoko, thank you for the insights. Naoko Aoki from the Rand Corporation, political scientist with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, live from Washington. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.